Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit that as the scriptures are read and your word is preached, we may hear with joy what you are saying to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text this morning is Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. And as I'm reading this, uh, think about the frenetic pace here of what's going on. Uh, Mark writes that way anyways, but just what's going on here in Jesus in the early part of his ministry. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus departed with his disciples to the lake, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. Hearing all that he was doing, they came to him, and great numbers from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan and the region around Tyre and Sidon. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd, so that they would not crush him. For he had cured many, so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, You are the Son of God. But he sternly ordered them not to make him known. He went up the mountain and called to those whom he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. So he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd came together again, so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him. For people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. That, of course, is a quotation from C.S. Lewis from what is famously known as his trilemma. It was an apologetic argument that Lewis gave. And basically what Lewis was saying, if you listen to Jesus' words, if you take what he really says in the Gospels, well, then you have to come to one of three conclusions. Either Jesus was Lord, liar, or as Lewis puts it, or as the argument goes, lunatic, right? Lord, liar, or lunatic. Lewis's trilemma forces you to make a choice about that. Which one of those three? I've always found that argument to be somewhat persuasive from a rhetorical perspective. And of course, in my case, 
I've chosen option number one. Jesus is my Lord. I look at what he says and I receive him as such. But recently, as I've been doing some reading, I came to a kind of a fresh way of thinking about Lewis's trilemma. It was an article that was written by Joanna Collicutt. She's a clinical psychologist who now teaches psychology and spirituality in a variety of places, including Oxford University. And she wrote an article entitled, Jesus and Madness. And at the opening of that article, she quotes from Lewis's trilemma. And she notes that Lewis's argument rests on this, this is a quote from her, the unquestioned assumption that madness and the divine are mutually exclusive. That madness and the divine are mutually exclusive. But then we come to this text. We come to Mark 3. We come to what I just read to you. And at least in the perception of the crowd that was gathered there that day around Jesus, they looked at Jesus, the incarnate Christ, the Lord of glory, and they thought he was out of his mind. Right? Verse 21, when his family heard it, they went out to restrain him. For people were saying, saying of Jesus, he has gone out of his mind. On that day, on Mark 3, that's captured there for us, when people considered Lewis's trilemma, right, they chose the third option. They thought that Jesus was a madman. Now, what are we to make of that text? Now, some have tried to exegete their way around this text. They take the text and they try to say, well, it really wasn't about Jesus being mad or what we might call mentally ill in our day. But that's wrong. Mark uses a word here in Greek which leaves no ambiguity. He's unequivocal about what he's saying the crowd saw, how they perceived Jesus. They thought he was mentally unbalanced, mentally unwell. In fact, the word choice is so powerful that through the ages, as scribes came to this text, later kind of versions of the New Testament, you know, as we do textual criticism, what we do is we try to get back to the earliest fragment, right? The ones closest to Jesus, but there are later copies that are made from them. And some of these later scribes and later manuscripts, they tried to massage this language of Mark. They, they looked at it and said, well, they can't be saying that Jesus was mad. And so they massaged the word a little bit. And you can see that emerge in other translations that are based on latter manuscripts. You can see it in the Revised Standard Version, verse 21. It's true in the King James as well. This is what it says in verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for people were saying he is beside himself. You see how they tried to soften that language. He's not out of his mind. No, he, he's just beside himself. But Mark is unambiguous. The plain reading of the text is that Jesus was considered mad by those who were looking at him, perceiving him, watching his behavior. He was seen as being out of his mind. And another piece of evidence to that argument is 
the behavior of his family. Think about what they do here. Did you catch that in the text, how they treat Jesus, how they react to what's going on here? What did they do? They went out to restrain him. What does that mean? And think about the scene, right? It's this, they went out to physically restrain Jesus to kind of take hold of him. In his commentary, Grant Osborne comments on that verb that's used here, that restraining, seizing verb. He says it's a verb often used in reference to arresting a criminal. They apparently want to force Jesus to return home with them, quit this foolish ministry. His mother may think he's on the verge of a breakdown, but his brothers certainly think he has gone crazy. That's a rather extraordinary scene, isn't it? If you can imagine that in your mind, it's, it's kind of something out of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right? Nurse Ratchet, this kind of ideas of straitjacketing and restraining. They went out to restrain Jesus. Why would they do that? Because he was behaving in a way that was perceived as mentally unbalanced. They thought he was mad. And either out of concern for him or out of a concern for themselves that he would shame the family, right? The the stigma around this, that they just wanted to get him off the stage, so to speak. Either way, the bottom line of our text is everyone there thought Jesus was out of his mind. So what are the implications of this text? What does a text like this mean for you and me? Are there any applications of this text for us this morning? Well, I want to try to look at this text and to give you two specific applications this morning, which I think legitimately flow from it. One of them will challenge you, I hope, and the other will comfort you, I hope. So let's think a little bit about this text. How do we apply this text? Well, application number one is this, and this is really the challenge. This text challenges our faithfulness. This text challenges our faithfulness, or perhaps I should say it challenges our faithlessness. Let me try to explain that. Here's a question for you this morning. Should faithful Christians appear That is, be perceived by others to be out of their minds sometimes. Yeah, ask that question again. Should faithful Christians appear, be perceived by others to be out of their minds sometimes? You understand what I'm asking you, what I'm getting at in that question. Let me explain that a little bit. In that article I mentioned by Joanna Collicutt, she cites the work of this medical anthropologist named Cecil Hellman. And he delineated this way of categorizing human behavior into various categories, of labeling it. You know, each culture does this differently, but as he studied different cultures, they all had kind of the same type of rubric. And if you could put that slide up there, the first one there. This is kind of this behavioral labeling that's done in cultures, right? Your your behavior can be considered normal. Your behavior can be considered religious. Your behavior can be considered bad or mad. 
And it's kind of a, a spectrum, right, from the mundane to the bizarre, right? And, and of course, above the line are those things that culture accepts that are sanctioned, and those below the line are things that culture will criticize and sometimes punish or take punitive actions towards. And so human behavior is often categorized. It's different by culture, but all cultures kind of do it in these categories. And you think about one, take the example of food. In our culture, to diet is normal, right? You tell somebody, I'm on a diet, that's considered culturally acceptable, culturally normal. If you're a religious person and you choose not to eat, people will see that, oh, that's fasting. We get that. That's religious normal behavior. But then we have things around food that we think are bad, right? Somebody like me who's really picky about their food, you know, foodies or snobs or whatever, right? Or somebody maybe who uh, overindulges or whatever. We might put that in the category of bad, like they're kind of uh, not, you know, you go to somebody's house and they put something in front of you and you refuse to eat it for whatever reason. You might be considered bad. And then, of course, in our culture, we have things that are diagnosed as eating disorders, right? They're considered something unhealthy and unwell in that category of, that is labeled there by Hellman as mad. Now, what I want you to think about a little bit is that kind of dividing line between religious normal and religious mad and that sense of the bordering on the bizarre, right? And the reason I'm asking you to think about that it's because I want to think about your own behavior. I mean, think about things that we do. This morning, we will partake of this bread and this cup, right? And, and I'll use language like this is the body and blood of the Lord. Now, in our culture, this would be considered religious normal, right? But you could see if an alien walked in here, you know, or somebody who was not familiar with Christianity, and I was using that type of language. And of course, this happened in the early church, didn't it? Where people thought Christians were cannibals. So that's kind of this religious normal. But then there's religious behavior that we consider bizarre or mad in our culture. You know, you think about things like uh, snake handling or speaking in tongues, things like that, that people will look at. Even Paul kind of speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 14.23, where he writes, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders, notice here he's pointing to the culture, outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? That they'll think you're religious mad, right? So he's, he's thinking about these categories. And I want you to think a little bit about your own behavior about your life in Christ and, and whether where you are in that. Do you ever blur that line between religious normal and religious mad? Something that might be considered bizarre by people around you. Do you ever go there? Because you see, we all want to be considered normal. We all want to be considered religious normal. We don't want to be weird. We, don't want, to, we want to be respectable Christians. But other times, where we should seem a bit bizarre. You can take down that slide. Let me give you an example. And this comes from Collicut's article. She gives this example of a guy named Franz Jagerstatter. Franz Jagerstatter. He was an Austrian peasant. And he refused to fight for the Third Reich. Right? He was drafted into the Wehrmacht. He was drafted. He had to go conscripted in the service. 
but he had this powerful religious awakening. He was a Roman Catholic. He, he was an obsessive Roman Catholic, and he believed in passive resistance, and he refused to fight for the Third Reich. He wouldn't do it. Everyone tried to persuade him to give up that stance. He was being threatened with imprisonment and execution. His family tried to convince him. His friends, the local police, the parish priest, even the bishop came into town to try to convince Franz Jagerstadter to fight. After all, he had a wife and three children. He was their provider. He wouldn't do it. He was arrested and he was executed for that. And in their minds, people looked at him and thought he was out of his mind. He's, he's basically uh, forcing himself into a suicidal type of behavior. After all, millions of Catholics fought. Even priests went and fought. Who does this guy think he is? And he refused and he was beheaded. He was in that category, right? Religious mad. This guy's out of control. But was he? Was he? He was beatified in 2007 by the Roman Catholic Church. I share with you that example because that's kind of what was going on with Jesus, right? In Mark chapter 3, people were looking at him. He's going around doing all of this stuff and, and what he's saying and what he's doing. And people are looking at him. They think he's gone out of his mind like he's overly zealous in his faith. What is he doing? He's taking this way too far. Even his own family thought that. You can think of the disciples who watched him when he cleansed the temple. That's another scene, right? And people were looking at them. And remember what the disciples recalled afterwards? Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was filled with this fervor, this zeal that was often misunderstood. There's a whole argument about how Jesus was viewed even by Pilate. And the Romans, whether they really thought he was an insurrectionist or, or leading a rebellion, or whether they just thought he was out of his mind. Remember how Pilate is kind of reluctant to take his life. And if you think about it, if he was really a threat, no one went down and, went and hunted down all the disciples and killed them all, right? If the Romans really thought these guys were leading a rebellion, what they likely thought that was Jesus was just out of his mind. That his zeal was to be understood in that sense of being religious madman. But Jesus wasn't mad, was he? He was being faithful. He was being zealous. And I guess what I want you to think about in this text is whether anyone ever has looked at your life, has looked at a choice you have made, and thought it was a bit odd. The thought that your religious behavior had skirted out of that normal category into perhaps bizarre or mad. Has anyone ever looked at you? Looked at your life and thought that? I remember when I was first converted, and you know, I had this kind of big conversion. I was in my college years. 
And I changed a lot of stuff. And I did a lot of, you know, I did some stuff that probably, you know, I would do differently, I would tell you. But like my mom, you know, I grew up in a nominal Roman Catholic background. My mom was looking at this, this behavior. And, you know, at times she was concerned I joined a cult, right? It was something she wasn't familiar with that I was kind of hacking up chickens in the basement of the church where I was going or something. What's going on in this place? I'm like, Mom, we didn't hand out sneakers. We didn't hand out Kool-Aid. You know, this is all, this is okay. But she did that because my behavior seemed to have changed in ways that made it conspicuous, made it different, made it perhaps looking a bit like I had gone off the deep end. Let me give you a little more subtle example of that. I have Christian friends who had a, have a very intelligent, gifted, academic daughter, and she went to a very good uh, school you know, a private school, and it did very well. She really could have gone to any of the private, prestigious, Ivy League, whatever you want to call it, schools. But she chose to go to Calvin University, a Christian school, a good one, a very good one. It certainly doesn't have the name drop power of Yale or Harvard or wherever, right? And people looked at that and said, how could you do that? You're denying your daughter all of these advantages, right? This is, the, this is the ticket to success in our country. You must be out of your mind. You see what I'm getting at? And I think this text forces us to ask that question of ourselves. Is anything that we're doing, any choice that we're making, does it ever, ever ever, I'm not saying we should live in there all the time, but do you have any zeal, any type of zealousness for the Lord that would lead someone to look at your life once in a while and say, that seems odd to me? And if not, what does that say about us? C.S. Lewis once said, it would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Is that true of you? Charles Spurgeon said, If sinners are zealous in their sins, should not saints be zealous for their God? What are you zealous for? I mean, I think about this coming out of the COVID world, and now the state of the Christian church, right? It's zealousness is considered showing up for church regularly. That's where we are. People looked at the lives of Jesus, what he was doing, his commitment. And I'm not saying we should be like Jesus. Of course, we're in an entirely different category. But think of the disciples. Think of the book of Acts. Think of the history of the church. Think of the people who built this place. Do you ever do anything that the world looks at and says, you're out of your mind? The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13. He's, pre, he's defending the perception of his ministry by people outside. Listen to what he says. He says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. And then he says this, verse 13, if we are, quote, out of our mind, quote, as some say, so they were saying it, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. 
If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Has anyone looked at your life, the choices you are making, and ever said that? That you seem a little not normal. Have you ever been perceived that way for God? And if not, why not? What does that say? Because Jesus was not out of his mind, right? He was entirely rational, the most rational of all. I think this text challenges us in our faith or the lack thereof. Zeal for the Lord. My second application is this. This text gives hope and dignity to those struggling with their mental health and also gives hope to those who love them. I think this is a text not only of challenge in the sense I've just shared with you, but a text of hope for those who struggle with mental health issues. Now, this is a little bit of an exegetical stretch, so you got to give me some flexibility. Let me make my case about why I say that, why this text gives hope. We know that Jesus, of course, was not suffering from mental illness. He was only perceived to be suffering from it. But that false impression of the crowd tells us something. It tells us that they had a category, an understanding in some sense of what mental illness was. They had a way of referring to it. A category of behavior that they understood to be mentally unwell. Now why is that significant? And why does that provide hope for people who are struggling with mental health and their loved ones? Because I think if we look at it, we all would acknowledge, this is true culturally, true in the church, that it has been harder over time to help people who are struggling with mental health issues more so than those who are struggling with physical health issues, right? We, we have for a long time thought about them in very different ways. And some of that is because really mental health awareness is probably a half century, 75 years old, really. It's new, but we've always thought about physical illness differently. And particularly Christians have often uh, put a stigma around mental illness, right? Because it's not in the Bible. It's not, we don't really have a category for it. We don't put stigmas around physical illness, but we do it. The culture did it too, but Christians did it. Kind of that there's a moral component to it. That it's a shameful kind of thing. And some of that has been wrapped up in kind of pitting faith against science, kind of a, a concern that psychiatry was something godless. And sometimes it is godless, but not all the time, right? There are good Christian psychiatrists. There are good contributions. So we've had all of this stigma, all of this shame, and so people don't talk about it. And a lot of that came from the idea, well, look, the Bible doesn't talk about it. The Bible has no category for this. We, you know, there's the, the lame will walk, the blind will see, but the mentally ill, will, will they be healed? Well, this text tells us that there was a category for this. And I know the Bible isn't the DSM, but if you look at the story of the Scripture, you'll see different places where mental health Issues emerge. Saul's depression, David's feigning of mental illness, Jonah. Look at chapter 4, read that. Nebuchadnezzar's breakdown, and then we have Jesus here as he's viewed by this crowd. 
And it's also possible, and I'm not really even sure I've come to terms with this entirely, but some have argued the whole issue of the healing of casting out demons, that that perhaps was a way of referring to mental illness, how it was understood in a pre-enlightenment, an ancient world. There's a professor, a Christian professor of psychology at, the, at Columbia University, Raji Gurgis, and I read a book about him where he makes this argument that demon possession was how a pre-modern culture referred to mental illness, and he talks about how the similarities of behavior, of long hair, of lack of hygiene, of homelessness, of chaotic utterances, of needing to be restrained. Think of the Gadarene demoniac. Now, I'm not willing to go there entirely because it takes all the supernatural out of it. I do believe Jesus cast out real demons, right? So, uh, but there's something, I think, here in what this guy is talking about. If you think about Jesus when he healed certain things, like person having convulsions or something, we talk about, oh, that's likely epilepsy, right? We have a way of relating to it in modern terms. Is it entirely impossible that that's a similar thing, that when Jesus healed someone who was struggling in their mind, that maybe he healed someone of mental illness, of mental struggle. Think of what it says about the Gadarene demoniac. At the end, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind totally changed. And Gurgis talks about this in his own practice of psychiatry, how he's helped people and seen them transformed like that. I don't know. Like I said, I don't want to take out all the supernatural and use totally a naturalistic explanation, but the idea that Jesus Christ would care about people's mental health as much as their physical health, that rings true to me that Jesus healed people of all types of conditions, both physical and mental, that seems right to me and seems biblical. And the point I'm trying to make this morning in this is that to all those who are struggling with mental health, Jesus cares. Jesus cares about you, and the church should care too. Just like with physical illness. So what can we do as a church to help people struggling with, phys- with mental illness, with mental struggles? We can help by resisting attaching any shame, stigma to it. We can help by speaking openly about our struggles with mental health. We can help by weeping with those who weep, the families of people who are struggling with mental health issues. They carry such a burden. We can support them in the church. In fact, that could be an understanding of what Jesus' family was dealing with. How was it like to deal with that in their time? We can help families. And finally, we can help in the church by encouraging people to get help. To get help. We need to be able to talk about this in the church. In my church I pastored before, there was a man in the congregation who I love dearly. I know my sound is going crazy here, but hang with me. I loved him dearly. And uh, 
he always had kind of a downcast personality. And I just, that's always how I knew him. I never really thought in terms, maybe this guy is suffering from depression or something like that. He never talked about it. He never shared it with me. And of course, I moved on after that. And one time when I was working for my law firm, I was down in Manhattan, and he was in Manhattan for his business. And he said, could we meet up? And we had lunch together. And, and I was just talking with him and, you know, about sports and, the, you know, the Yankees and lunch and New York City and whatever it was. And, and then not long after that, he took his life. He'd been suffering from severe depression. I never saw it. I know all those things you could do, right? I mean, some of it's like idolization of your you know, self-idealization of your, you know, uh, some of it is the guilt, like you think about it. Why didn't I see it? What, you know, and I'm, I'm, I have a very minor way of dealing with that, but it does haunt me a little bit. Why didn't I see it? Why didn't he say anything? Why? And then I thought, would it have helped if I had talked about it in the church? If I had done what I'm doing today, I don't know if it would have helped. But I know it wouldn't have hurt. And so we're talking about it this morning. And I know there are people who are listening, who will listen to this later, get help. And if you come see me, I'll get you to help. And there are other places to get help. If you could put that slide up here. There's help for urgent things here in Rochester with the U of R Medicine Crisis Line. There's a NAMI hotline that's national. Those are for crisis situations. If you are a Christian and you feel depressed, David Murray's book, Christians Get Depressed Too, can be a very helpful thing. This guy is a conservative, reformed theologian, teaches at the Puritan Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids. You can go to places like mentalhealthgracealliance.org, a Christian mental health qualified people. There's faithfulcounseling.com. Again, faithful people. You can get counseling over online. You can do it with uh, anonymity if you want to. Or you can talk to your primary care physician. They will get you to someone. But get help. The church needs to talk about it. Because the bottom line is that Jesus Christ offers hope and dignity to all people who suffer, regardless of the nature of their suffering, and for those who love them. Would you join me in prayer?